You're listening to Pastor Fred Neal III of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you'll be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, Lord Willing and the Creek Don't Rise, recorded on Sunday, March 19th, 2017. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Fred as he preaches. Well, we want to get into the message. I would invite you to go ahead and have your maps ready. We're going to uh, jump right into the fill in the blanks here pretty quickly. There are a couple of truths as we look at James 4. We're going to look specifically at 4, 13 through 17. There are a couple of truths that James reminds us of that are fairly easy to observe, but often very difficult to accept. There are things that I think we'd all, we all can see are plain as day in the world around us, yet Yet most of us would struggle to accept them and apply them to our lives. And I think you understand what I mean as we look at these together. The first truth that James reminds us of in chapter 4, 13 through 17, is that you are not in control. And that's the first thing you'll see on your map there. You are not in control. Again, this is one of those things that's easy to observe, but perhaps hard to or difficult to accept he says in verse 13 come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring and so he's he's drawing attention to something that we all do we all go about our lives in different ways under the assumption that we get to decide what happens that we are somehow in control of life. But he reminds us, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. This is a difficult thing for us to accept. Who doesn't want to be in control? I mean, even if you would use control to put somebody else in control, we all want to be in control. We're all backseat drivers in life, aren't we? We cannot resist the urge to comment on how we think things ought to be done. Whether it's the weather, or politics, or who should have won the the latest season of The Voice, or how our careers should have played out, or how our health should look, or, or who should have or who should not have passed away, we all wish we were in control at some point or another. Fact is, we're all control freaks. We want that control over our lives. We want control over the people around us, at least at at some times. We want to be in control of what's happening in the world. Kim and I, the older we get, the longer we've been married, we're, we're, we're coming into this thing where we find it harder and harder to ride in the car with the other person driving. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing what ha- the change that happens in those just two to three feet from the driver's seat to the passenger seat. And we, we can't resist the urge to, to keep a running commentary of how the other person's doing when they're driving. I'm pretty sure we drive exactly alike, and both of us have excellent driving records. Neither one of us have ever had a serious or a, a accident or, or, or caused anything bad to happen behind the wheel, but for some reason when she's driving, it feels like every turn's taken too fast. 
I'm convinced that she can't see red lights or other cars or other things that are happening around us. And it seems to be that she has the same experience when I'm in the driver's seat. We all want control. Yet James reminds us we are not in control. It's not up to us to decide many of the things that happen in the world. And the truth is you can work as hard as you want to to gain control of your life. You can become the boss of the company you work for. You can save enough money to survive any potential catastrophes that might happen in your life. You can meticulously plan every detail of your days and of the rest of your life. You can work out and eat healthy to ward off potential disease. And yet you are still not in control. You could still get one of about a million different illnesses or diseases. You could lose your job and your savings in thousands of different ways. You could die in a thousand different ways. Your spouse could leave you for someone else. Your child could become addicted to drugs. It could snow when you want it to be warm. Your favorite character on The Walking Dead could still die. There are an infinite number of things that could happen that are beyond your control, no matter how hard you try. No matter how hard you work, no matter how hard you plan, you are not in control. Let me give you some examples from Scripture. Let's look at Luke 12 together. Jesus tells a parable, and starting in verse 16, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for you for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul was required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, admittedly, this, this parable that Jesus told is, is a teaching opportunity about how we ought to use the wealth that God brings into our lives. But it, isn't it a fantastic example of how so many people live their lives? They, they think they've got it all figured out. This guy had enough resources and money to stay in control of his life for the foreseeable future. He got to the place where we all aspire to get to, where we no longer have to work or strive or toil to to just stay above water. He had enough to rest and take it easy and and to, to kick back and relax. Yet he was not in control. God said to him, This night your soul is required of you. He no longer had to work or to worry about where he would get his provision. He had all that he needed and then boom, in one night, God separates this man from all that he had accumulated. His wealth did not put him in control. Now, what are we supposed to do with that? There's, there's certainly that parable needs unpacked in a, in, in a lot of different ways, and there's a lot there to think through. And I'm not saying it's bad to do well. 
Is it better to, to make $70,000 a year than $20,000 a year? Well, yeah, sure, of course. In a lot of ways, it is. When you have $70,000 a year, you can buy a car that doesn't break down as often. You can, you can put a roof over your head that doesn't leak. You can make it cooler when it's warm outside, and you can make it warmer when it's cool outside. There are a lot of good things that can come from success. There are a lot of good things that can come from having more money, but this becomes deceiving. Because in the big picture of things, no matter how much money you have, you're still not in control. Many wealthy people have become wealthy because of their obsession with having enough money to control their lives. That's what drives them. They, they want the ability to do what they want and to control things and people around them. They want to know if they get sick, they can go to the best doctor. They want to know that when they go on vacation, they can go to anywhere they want. They want to know that they have enough money that they can drive vehicles that don't break down. And houses that don't fall apart. And when they do, they can just pay somebody to fix it. This is what drives many people to acquire wealth. They want control. But it's a mirage that they're chasing. Many of them are never satisfied in this. In fact, many of them become absolutely neurotic in their pursuit of control. I think it was Rockefeller that was asked one time, how much money is enough? And he said, a little more. It's this mirage that you chase after, that it's never enough. It never satisfies. It never gives you what you want, which ultimately is to be in control of your life. But the truth is, you don't have to be wealthy to go down this road. We all want control and seek to gain it in a variety of ways. We try to control people around us through intimidation. We try to control the people around us through making them feel guilty or, or using shame. Or sometimes we can try to control people around us by causing them to pity us. Or by putting them down. Or a whole a host of ways that we try to control the people around us. We do this because we are not in control. And we don't like that very much. We will pursue control anywhere we can get it. This is one of the main reasons that young people do strange things like develop eating disorders. It's one of the main reasons that young people today are cutting themselves. It's one of the main reasons that young people do what I did when I was a teenager, dress in bizarre ways. We want to control anything that we can. I can't control that my mom and dad fight and argue all the time, but I can control the food in my stomach. I can't control the pain of my boyfriend or girlfriend breaking up with me, but I can control the pain that I inflict on myself with this knife. I can't control where my parents say I have to live or where I have to go to school or a lot of the things that I have to do, but I can control the way I look and the way I dress. You see, we all want control, and we go about it in a variety of different ways. But there's a better way. And that's the good news that we're going to get to. There's a better way than all of these things. You don't have to work yourself to death. You don't have to worry about every little thing that you put into your body and whether or not it's going to make you sick. You don't have to, you don't have to go to extremes like cut yourself to be in control. There's a better way. We're going to get to that in a few minutes. But, but for now, I want to stay on this point for just a few more minutes. 
Money doesn't put you in control, but we don't all pursue control in that way. It's also true that, that godly living doesn't put us in control. Now that's a strange point to make, and, and I want to try to explain what I mean. I think what we do is we mistakenly think that if we live for God, now I'm speaking to the Christians here, we mistakenly believe that if we live for God, nothing bad will ever happen. Or we think that if we live for God, if we obey what he says, then, and then we are striving to do good things, that God is somehow obligated to make that happen for us. I know this is kind of an abstract thing I'm thinking here, but let me try to clarify it with Scripture. I want to show you in Romans 1 what I mean. In Romans 1, Paul says in verse 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. He's writing to the church in Rome. He's never met these people, that he, these Christians that he's writing to. But he says, hey, I've, I've wanted to come for a long time, but I've often been prevented. This is an example of when we want to do something good, yet God stops us. Let me show you where the same thing happened to Paul in Acts 16. It says, and they, meaning Paul and some of his associates, went through the, the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Here we have a man who was faithful to the Lord, desiring to do something good, and God stopped him from doing it. So maybe you're not seeking control over your life through wealth. Maybe you're not seeking control over the people around you through intimidation. Maybe you're seeking control in your life by obeying God. You think that if I just, if I just do what, what God wants, then he'll just honor all of my desires and he'll help me accomplish the things that I want to accomplish. Yet God will not yield control to you no matter how you go about getting it. He's not letting go of the reins. He doesn't give them up for anything. He doesn't give them to the wealthy and he doesn't give them to those who are godly. Good Christians doing good things are still not in control. So what should we do with our desire to be in control? We're getting to that. But first, there's another difficult truth we need to look at in James. The second thing on your map. Your life on earth is finite. Your life on earth is finite. This is the next thing. James tells us not only are we not in control, but our lives on earth are finite. He says this in verse 14. He says, what is your life? I love that question. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Talk about something that is abundantly obvious to all of us. We see evidence of this all around us. All of us, our lives are flying by in the, in the blink of an eye. We're constantly confronted with this reality that our lives on earth are quickly expiring. Yet we work so hard to deny that or to forget it or to ignore it. We do everything we can to, to block out that reality. Nonetheless, life here on earth is brutally short. I just did another funeral, and like I do at every funeral, I, I read this verse from James. 
4.14. For what, what is your life for you are missed that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And you know, I've read that at a lot of funerals. It doesn't matter how long that person lived, that rings true in every heart. Whether you lived on this earth for eight minutes or 80 years, it all feels like a mist, doesn't it? It all flies by. There is, there is no length of time that we get here on earth that is sufficient to satisfy that desire to live a long life. Our lives here on earth are finite. They don't last forever. They don't even last as long as we want them to. Time flies by. We never get it back. We can't even slow it down. The clock is always ticking. In 2011, the Population Reference Bureau estimated that there have been 108 billion people born on this planet. That was in 2011. Add a few years, let's, let's give it another billion for the last six years, call it 109 billion people. 109 billion people have been born onto this planet. So here's the question, where are they all? Where did everybody go? If there have been 109 billion people, now that's a very speculative number, I understand that, but regardless of how accurate it is or is not, where did everybody go? There's only like 7 to 8 billion of us here now. Where's the other 100 billion? Well, the answer is obvious. They've died. They came and they went. Their mist is gone. And except for a very small few of them, we don't even know they were here. Except for the, the few people that you get close to in life, you don't even miss those billions of people that pass by. Every funeral that I do is a reminder that one day I myself will be in that coffin. Some preacher will get up and he'll say some things. Hopefully he'll preach the gospel. Maybe some folks will cry. Maybe they won't. But the world will keep on turning without me. And that's true of all of us. There have been 109 billion people born on this planet, and we don't remember any of them, except for a small few. When I was growing up, my mom, during the dry winter months, would walk around the house sometimes with a spray bottle full of water, and she'd just spray it into the air. This, that's a poor man's humidifier, by the way. If you can't afford a humidifier, you can afford a spray bottle, right? <laughs> And she, she would just spray, and I can, I can vividly remember, especially if the sun was shining through the windows, seeing that fine mist go up into the air and then just very quickly dissipate. If you came into the room just a second after she had done this, you wouldn't even know it happened. James says your life is like a mist. It just goes away. It's, it's brief, it's finite, it disappears in a hurry. Most people don't even know it ever happened. The majority of the world's population is unaware that you are even here. Let me show you some scriptures that, that reinforce what James is saying to us. Psalm 39, 4 through 6. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. 
Let me know how fleeting I am. What a prayer. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Psalm 62 verse 9. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. Psalm 144 Verses 3 and 4, O Lord, what is man that you regard him? Or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. This is an observation that's made by many of the biblical writers. And it's an observation that can easily be made by any one of us. Life is short. It goes by fast. It hardly leaves a mark in the universe. Our lives here on earth are finite. And so James says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. And so to summarize all of this lovely news that I'm reminding you of, your brief fleeting life is largely outside of your control. Let's close in prayer. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Well, as I said in in the beginning, these truths are easy to observe but difficult to accept. Anybody struggling with what I'm saying right now? Is Is it bothering you that life is so finite that it can be accurately described as a mist? Are you are you feeling the 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 anxiety of not being in control? Don't you want to have more control over your life? over the people around you, over the world that we live in? In fact, this is the reason our lives are so full of anxiety and anger. Because those are our two responses to not being in control. When we realize we're not in control of something we want to be in control of, we usually respond in one of two ways. We get angry or we become anxious. Think about the last thing that made you anxious or think about the last thing that made you angry, there's a good chance it's something you weren't in control of. You get mad because the people around you don't do what you want them to do. You get anxious because you live in a world full of dangerous possibilities, things that could go wrong at any moment. When the people in my home don't do things the way I want them to, I get angry. It bothers me. It gets under my skin. I get angry because they're not cooperating with my desire to control my environment. I have, I have one simple, well, I have a couple of simple rules. But I have one simple rule for the bathroom at my house. Flush the toilet. That's a, that's a simple rule. It doesn't matter what business you did in the toilet or what number is associated with what you did. Flush it when you're done. There's nothing that you're going to place in that toilet that needs to be left there for the rest of us to observe. That's a simple rule. 
And I just want everybody in my house to live by this rule. Unfortunately, sometimes people think the toilet is an acceptable place for a science experiment. It's not. When I lift the lid of the toilet, I don't want to see anything but crystal clear water. We have these rules that we want people to live by. I remember when, when uh, I'm, t- I'm probably telling too many personal examples here, but I remember when uh, Kim and I got married, we, well, when we were in the process of preparing for marriage, one of the things we were supposed to do was to make up our own list of our own Ten Commandments, it was called. And really what it boiled down to was like, what are your pet peeves? And that's really a good thing to cover in the pre-marriage uh, counseling process because they're going to come out. And I can remember Kim and I were like, I really can't think of anything. We're just, we're just so excited to live together. And, you know, and here we are 12 years later. It's, I don't have 10 commandments. I have like 1,000 commandments. I have all kinds of pet peeves. I just didn't know that, that they were there. And I remember this one time uh, very early in Kim and I's marriage. One of the things that drives me nuts is when you can't find the keys to the car. And so, you know, she would just put the keys wherever she wanted. Sometimes they're in her purse, sometimes they're in her counter, sometimes they're in the ignition of the vehicle. And I could never find the keys. And it was driving me crazy. And so, so one time I, I just, I got so angry that, that I, I came back in the house and I was like, and I was trying to be mature. And I was trying to say this in a polite way. So I was like, you know, consistency with the car keys is really important to me. <laughs> and, and... This is one of those things that she's never let me forget that I said, you know, like consistency, you know, like what kind of snob would say something as ridiculous as that, you know. But when we can't control people, we get angry. It's what, it's what causes us to get angry or to become anxious. When we can't control events, when we can't control the, world, the way the world happens, we get anxious. We worry about people getting sick. We worry about people being in accidents. We worry about whether or not we're going to lose our job when our company decides to downsize. We worry about the stock market. Are we going to lose all of that money that we've been saving up that we need to live on in retirement? We get angry and we get anxious because we're not in control. But there's good news for our angry and anxious souls. The next thing you see on your map is this. The Lord is in control. You are not in control. Your life on earth is finite. But God is in control. I want to look at our passage again. I'll give you a second to write that down. The Lord is in control. In verse 13, again, let me read. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead. Instead. That's an important word here. Because He's saying, you have this way of doing things. You plan and you strive to be in control and you get angry and you get anxious and you've got all of this going on. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, 
Why does it matter if the Lord wills it or not? Because he's in control. He's calling the shots. He's the one that decides what comes to pass and what doesn't. Not you. It's up to him how your life is going to go. It's it's up to him the things that are going to happen. If the Lord wills. Now, maybe I'm making some of you nervous because you're like, wait a minute, we're supposed to do things and we're supposed to be responsible. Yes, we're, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to balance this out a little bit before we end today, I, I hope. But for now, let's just let this sink in a little bit. If the Lord wills, if it's what he wants, if it's what he desires, if it's what he has planned, we will live and do this or that. This is the good news. It's good news because even though we want to be in control, he's really the only one that should be in control. My kids might want to be in control, but if we allow them to be in control, bad things happen in our home. And so it is with us in the Lord. Even though we want that control, really he's the only one qualified to have control. Not only that, but he loves us and he has a good plan for us. So his control is good news for us. Regardless of our difficulty in accepting this, it's infinitely better that he is in control. It's infinitely better that he is in control. He has the wisdom, the knowledge, and the power that are needed to ensure that this turns out okay. And he loves us enough to ensure us that it happens for our good. Isaiah was prophesying regarding things that God was going to do among the nations. And he said these words. He said, this is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. And this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed. And who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? The answer, of course, that Isaiah is looking for is no one. No one's going to stop God's plan. No one is going to overpower him. No one can annul or turn back what he desires to do. If he is for us, who can stand to be against us? If he is for us, then this is good news for us. It's good news because he is going to make sure that we're okay. I have, I have two strong-willed girls. They say that the strong-willed children need you to set boundaries for them. And enforce those boundaries. And when you, when you do that, they actually gain a sense of of calmness and peace in their lives. They need to know where the boundaries are at. It gives them peace. And and this is true to some degree of all children. I think it's especially true of strong-willed children because they're seeking control. They're seeking to, they need control over their environment. They need to know that everything's going to be okay. And so we as parents, when we have strong-willed children, we need to, hear me on this, in a kind and loving way, Not as bullies, not as tyrants, but in a kind and loving way, we need to let them know that we are in control. 
this is good for them. Partially because we've put rules in place that are for their good, but also because we want to reassure them that they can rest under our care. And isn't that what we need from God? We need to know that He's in control. Partially because He makes good rules. And He puts rules in place that if we'll live within them, they're for our protection, for our good, and for our benefit. Life goes better when you live within the rules that God has laid out for your life. But we also need to know that He is in control so that we can rest in Him. So that we can rest under his care, protection, and oversight of our lives. He's got it under control. We need to know that all all is under his authority. And that brings peace. That brings comfort. It's like when you when you get on a plane, and I I hate riding, I hate flying in planes more and more all the time. Probably because I'm not in control. But you know when the pilot comes over the intercom and he says, hey, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And here we got a plan and we're, we're in control is what he's saying. So I just want you to sit back and enjoy the flight. God has things under control. He wants us to rest under that control. He wants us to know that he is exercising his care and his protection and his oversight over us at all times. And we can sleep well and we can rest under his control over our lives. Of course, that doesn't mean we never have times when we question that. There's always going to be times when we feel like, well, This seems a little out of control right now where we question whether or not God has our best interest in mind. We we might question that, but, but James is calling us to live with this mindset that he is in control, to let that be our attitude in all things. So now let me, let me get, I said I was gonna balance this out a little bit, okay? This is not a prohibition against making plans, setting goals, or striving to accomplish things. God wants you to do that. God wants you to be ambitious. He wants you to strive towards good, godly accomplishments in life. And I also don't think that it means that we literally have to preface everything we say with the phrase, if the Lord wills. There's no example in Scripture of anyone ever making a habit of saying that. But we do have to remain aware at all times of this reality. We should make our plans knowing that even if they're good plans, God may change what happens. When Paul wanted to go see the Romans and when he, when he set out to preach the gospel in Asia, he made good plans, but, the, but God said no. God stopped him for reasons that were unbeknownst to Paul, but for good reasons. God stopped him, and so it, so it is. We should plan, and we should seek to do good things, but we should always remember that what happens in our lives is subject to whether or not the Lord wills it, whether or not it's what God wants to happen. James said in verse 16, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. The sin he's confronting here is the arrogant boasting that comes from the mouths of people whose hearts do not accept that the Lord is in control. 
and all such boasting is evil, he says. Jesus is, of course, our supreme example for us to follow in this. When he was in the Garden of Gethsemane before going to the cross, he was greatly distressed. He knew what was coming. He knew what laid ahead. He was aware of what he was about to endure. And it wasn't just the physical pain. It was the mental and the emotional, the spiritual pain of the Father pouring his wrath for our sin out on the perfect Son. And Jesus prayed, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, and you know what he says, right? Not as I will, but as you will. This is our example. It's okay, it's okay to ask God for the things that are the desires of your heart. But every prayer should be submitted to him in the attitude of, God, but not my will, yours. It's okay to make plans. It's good to make plans. It's good to say, this is what I'm going to strive to do. This is what I'm setting out to do. But we must have this, this mentality that everything that happens in our lives is up to whether or not it conforms to his will. If it's what God wants, then that's what we'll do. So what do we do with this? James gives us the application, and it's the fourth thing you see on your map. Therefore, live for him. If we are not in control, and if our lives here on earth are finite, and if God is in control, what should we do? Live for him. We should live our lives in radical obedience to Jesus Christ. He says in verse 17, he makes sure that we understand the application of all of this. In verse 17, for, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The reason this verse is so important in this passage is because everything up to verse 17 probably would convince a lot of people, well, hey, if God's in control and I'm not really in control, then what's it matter what I do? I don't even really need to try whatever he wants to do, he's going to do. And so I'm just going to kind of enjoy the ride. There's, there's really no reason to be ambitious or to get excited or to make plans. And James says, that's not the conclusion I want you to come to. In fact, if you know the right thing to do, if there's something that you ought to do in your life, if there's a good opportunity before you and you don't do it, that's called sin. It would be an unbiblical and unhealthy attitude to say, well, I'm not in control and what's my life really matter here? I'm only here for a little while. Nobody's even going to know I was here. That's not the conclusion that James brings us to. He brings us to this point where we are called to radical obedience. That it's because we are not in control. It's because our lives here on earth are finite. And yet, because God is in control, that we should act. That we should move, that we should do what he has called us to do. Because God, being in control, takes finite lives like ours and makes them count for eternity. And so sometimes we get so caught up and well, I don't know if it's God's will for me to do this or God's will for me to do that. And, and, and God just really wants to simplify that for us and wants us to keep moving, keep our foot on the gas 
and let him handle the steering. We just keep doing what's in front of us that seems good and that seems right and that seems acceptable. In fact, there's a saying that's been repeated throughout church history that says this. It says, love God and do whatever you please. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. In other words, if you're, if you're seeking to live your life out of love for God, just do what seems right. Do what seems good. Because your, your desire to, to love God is something that he can work with. It's something that's not going to take you in the wrong direction. If it does begin to take you in the wrong direction, he'll be quick to adjust your course and get you headed in the direction that he wants to. So love God and do whatever you please. Do what seems good. That's such a simple and reliable principle for us. If you're living a life of love for God, you would desire to do good things, and you should do them. And if you don't do them, that's sin. That's what, that's what James is telling us here. It's so much easier to steer a vehicle that is mo- in motion than one sitting still. In fact, some vehicles can't be steered when, they're, when you're not on the throttle. I learned this the hard way. I have a, a scar on my chin that serves as a reminder of this truth. As a teenager, we had boats and wave runners and, and uh, all those kinds of river toys. And one day, I, I was out on the river uh, with my brother. Uh, on, we were on wave runners, and we came across some friends. And so we, we kind of flagged them down, and they were coming towards us, and they were on wave runners. Uh, and there was a girl driving. I'm not saying girls are bad drivers. But there was a girl driving one of the wave runners, and she was coming towards me. And uh, we kind of ended up on this collision path. And if you know anything about wave runners, if you let off the throttle, you can't steer it anymore. There's no rudder. It's jet propulsion. And so if you let off the throttle, you lose the ability to steer. Well, she panicked. She let off the throttle and stopped, and she couldn't steer anymore. And she came right up over the front of my wave runner. And those things are built perfectly like ramps, (laughs) ramps that lead right to your face. (laughs) And so her wave runner came right to my face. And uh, as I leaned back, it caught me on the chin, threw me back in the water. I come up out of the water and there's blood just, just pouring out of my chin. And my brother panics and he gets me back on the wave runner and takes me in. And, and fortunately, I was okay. And I just got a few stitches. But that scar is there to remind me of that incident. And life's a little bit like that. When we let off the gas, it's a lot harder to change direction. And so what God wants us to do, I think, is to stay on the gas to be active, to live lives of obedience to him and stop worrying so much about what is the right direction to go. Just keep going. He'll do the steering. He's going to lead you. He's in control of your life. He'll keep you on the path that he wants you to go as long as you're living in obedience to him. If you know something good that you should do and don't do it, you are in sin, so do it now, I love, I love how John 10 kind of pulls these principles together, these four points. You're not in control. Your life on earth is finite. The Lord is in control. Therefore, live for him. Let's look at John 10 and see how Jesus just exemplifies these four things for us in John 10, 14 through 18. He says, I am the good shepherd I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. 
and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Listen to verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus proves that we are not in control, that humans, that men are not in control. Long before he was crucified, he declared that no one was taking his life from him. Rather, he was laying it down that many might be saved. God is in control of all things. And here's the thing, even though Jesus' life on earth was brief, he only lived to be about 33 years old, he lived every moment for the kingdom. And he changed human history and all of eternity. And God took a finite life, lived in the reality that men are not in control, but God is in control, and used that to change eternity. And Jesus' example is one that we should follow and that we should have confidence that he is in control. He is in control and our lives, though they are finite, can count for all of eternity. In fact, that's what he promises to do. That's what he calls us to. But it starts with receiving Jesus' act of sacrifice on your behalf. He laid down his life so that you could be saved. He went to the cross to pay the price for your sins. And that's where this thing starts. The death that he died on the cross was for you. And so it begins with embracing the Savior. It begins with putting our trust in what he has done for us. And then out of that, God can take our finite lives and use his control to do incredible things. Things that will count for all of eternity. Things like spreading the gospel, just like St. Patrick did to a whole nation. Things like loving one another in ways that is transformative that we become more like Christ. And so I want to ask you, have you received him as your savior? Will you commit to living your brief life here on earth in obedience to him? Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.